perhaps more so than any other place in 1 Peter, we find in our text this morning the greatest contrast of a life with God compared to life without God. Peter tells the church, you have spent enough of your short time on this earth doing the things the Gentiles do, making harmful choices, choices and behaviors that actually diminish your humanity. He actually gives a list of what kinds of things that they used to do. Our translation says, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry, perhaps that one being the worst of all. The negative picture that Peter paints here isn't necessarily just dancing and card playing like they used to do in the olden days. It's not the occasional glass of wine with dinner, but it's an extreme submerging of yourself into destructive behavior. The selfish pursuit of fulfilling sexual desires, addictive patterns, all that are outside God's intention of what is healthy living. Living according to what Peter calls human desire is a matter of being enslaved to your own self-pleasure, your own self-interest, and that alone. The Gentiles are described as a people who routinely engage in parties of drunkenness and promiscuity. In other words, excessive drinking. I like that song. Let's... <laughs> Excessive drinking, recreational sex, and perhaps the occasional bar fight where that song might have been played. <laughs> You've spent enough of your time doing that kind of thing, Peter says. You know, I think if he were actually to rewrite his vice list for us today, I don't think it would be all that different. Drugs, binge drinking, promiscuity, those things that we too are still so easily addicted. But in our highly individualistic society, these are things that we often now do alone. If Peter were writing this text today, perhaps he would also add racism, sexism, and consumerism which sadly are realities that still exist even within the church walls. And all of these things distract us from the fullest life that God has for each and every one of us. Leave those things behind, Peter says, because your time on this planet is limited. We have to come to understand that the life of faith has so much more to offer than these patterns of destruction that Peter talks about. This is why it says in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. The word here for end is actually the Greek word telos, which can also be translated as a goal being worked out. When Peter talks about the end of all things being near, he means the process 
of God's cosmic transformation all the way from the heavens above to your inner heart, the process of that transformation is nearly complete. So it's really not an end at all, but a beginning. The beginning of life as God has always intended it to be. So Peter says, be serious. Discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Another way to read that would be, be wise and sober so that you can pray. Those who are wise, who are thoughtful and reflective about, about life and not checked out from reality are those who understand God's cosmic trajectory, the coming of his new creation. They understand how to pray for that and how to participate in that plan. What I love about the text this morning is that we don't just hear what God is against, those habitual patterns that consume us, but you also get to hear what God is for. Verses 8, 9, and 10, Peter gives three virtues, three qualities that distinguish the life of faith. Mutual love, hospitality, and service. In verse 8, above all, Peter says, above all. In other words, most importantly, maintain constant love for one another. Love that is non-stop, unceasing. You love someone, and then you love them again, and love them again, and love them again. That is the most important instruction, for love covers a multitude of sins. Similar language is actually found in James chapter 5, verse 20. You should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Both verses seem to be influenced by Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. To say that love covers a multitude of sins doesn't mean that our love somehow hides or conceals our mistakes, or if we, by some chance, do enough loving deeds, then it'll cancel out our bad deeds, those things that we've done to hurt or harm others. The verse here isn't talking about some form of penance. Commenting on this verse, one scholar wrote that the word cover in the context of 1 Peter isn't about concealing or hiding, but rather to obliterate or make disappear. In other words, transformation. If we look back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Meaning it is the love of Christ that covers a multitude of sins. Not just cover 
but obliterate. And as we practice love, as we follow the example of Christ, which is what so much of 1 Peter is all about, we are pulled more so into that life of transformation by the power and grace of God. We move from the realm of sin being ruled by sin into the realm of Christ. We become a community that is marked and characterized by love, not hate, not division. This doesn't mean, of course, that you will never make another mistake in your life. It just means that sin is no longer your ruler. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for it covers a multitude of sins. Perhaps one of the greatest expressions of love is found in verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. I love the add-on of that verse, without complaining, because it shows that Christ isn't just so concerned with what we do, but why we do it. Christ is concerned about the condition of our heart. I mean, we get this, right? You can't say, yeah, honey, I'll clean up the house, but the entire time complaining and cursing as you do, that's not going to have the effect of love. Or when you finally agree to go see Celine Dion in concert, if you're complaining the entire time, it's not going to be fun for your spouse, gentlemen. I've actually never seen Celine Dion, but I heard it's good. That's practical teaching, yeah? Practice hospitality without complaining. Hospitality was one of the central values of the early church. It represented one of their deepest commitments. Christians are commanded to practice hospitality here in 1 Peter, also in Romans and Hebrews. Stories of Abraham, Lot, and Rahab practicing hospitality in the Old Testament were held up as exemplary. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was a matter of, of housing, protecting, and feeding guests and strangers in a time when hotels and hostels were limited or non-existent. The word hospitality in biblical Greek actually means love of stranger. It's two words, love and stranger, or foreigner. Hospitality included the sharing of a meal at the family table, which symbolized the extension of friendship and even the inclusion into the family itself. There are a lot of people at our church who do this really well. A lot of them are out there right now making a delicious Kahlua pork meal for us. And actually, our brothers and sisters from Pakistan are very good at practicing hospitality and have much to teach us about it. Friends, if this is not a regular practice in your life, I encourage you to start practicing hospitality in your home if you can and see what God does at your table. But for the early church, hospitality wasn't just a virtuous practice of the home or the individual, but a vital part of the church's survival and growth. Churches met in homes, in the back of shops, 
in spare rooms. Groups of 10, 20, 30, sometimes 40 people. The church was dependent upon people opening up their space for the breaking of bread and for worship. For us, this means practicing hospitality on an individual level in our homes, absolutely, but also practicing hospitality as a community of faith with our building in our worship. During the week, with how we open up our building to people, but especially, especially on Sunday morning for worship. This means that, friends, for whatever reason, if practicing hospitality in your home is impossible or impractical, you get to practice hospitality every Sunday morning when you are here with us at worship. Do you want to know what it means for us to be a loving church? Being a church that radically practices hospitality, welcoming, inviting, honoring, forming friendships and bonds with people. I've been a pastor here for now three years, which isn't a particularly long time, especially when you compare it to Pastor John, who's been here since the last millennia. (laughs) I've heard a lot of great, great stories about our church and how welcoming and inviting that we have been. That's incredible. But if we're honest, I've also heard some stories that aren't great. This is something that we need to take seriously on Sunday morning and throughout the week. What if we were a church that was known throughout Snohomish County for being radically inviting, welcoming, and hospitable towards people of all walks of life? Whoever walks into our doors, we celebrate the fact that they are here to worship God with us. Not for the sake of our church growing or having better numbers, but for the sake of loving people because that's what Jesus wants us to do. For the sake of the lost finding a home with us. The last marker for the life of faith that Peter gives is that we be a people who serve like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Each and every one of us, every one of us has a gift. It is meant to be used in service, not so that people would be impressed with us or our gift, but that people would give glory to God. As Peter says in verse 11. So the two questions that this particular verse brings up is, what is your gift? And are you stewarding it well in the service of others? There are two kind of lives described in our text this morning. One being the life of flourishing, of love, hospitality, hope, justice, meaning, and purpose. Life with God. And the other, the other being the life devoted to self-pleasure and self-interest. A life 
without God, a life doomed for destruction. But how do we move from that one life to the other? I think the key is actually found in verse 1. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, we are to arm ourselves with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Suffering. Something we needn't go looking for in life, but something that we cannot avoid in this life. Most of 1 Peter deals with this idea of suffering. But for many of us in our country here in the United States, specifically in Washington, we struggle to relate to this text because we don't seem to be suffering as they did in the first century or as our brothers and sisters do in Pakistan and many other places in the world today. No one is actively persecuting us. But the truth is, there's various kinds of suffering. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the cross is laid on the back of every Christian. And we experience suffering on different levels for the sake of Christ, but the first step of suffering is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Abandon the attachments of this world. Not too much, unlike that vice list in verse 3 that seems to still consume our culture. We live in a society with our many possessions, our busy lives, our false sense of importance, and our great wealth. We have many attachments to this world. Leaving those attachments behind requires a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, a denial of self and self-interest. If ye should be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. To suffer in the flesh does not necessarily have to mean bodily pain. It's, it's more so a battle against the forces of human desire, the forces of evil within. That is the kind of suffering that we, especially in our country, should be acquainted with. Suffering for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our faith, can transform us from a people who are attached to this world attached to the desires of the flesh and to a people who are more capable of loving, of being hospitable, and of serving. If you think about it, those times in your life that are most painful as hard, as hard as they are, are often the most transformative. God is with us when we suffer. I don't claim to have experienced a great deal of suffering in my own life, but one of the hardest times of my life was during my final year of seminary. 
Within the span of a few months, two of my extended family members passed away. Both were young. I had a good friend who was killed in a tragic bicycle accident. My dad had a quadruple bypass. And all the while, I was facing some pretty tough questions in my classes at seminary. At the time, I didn't really know how to process my feelings. I started to have severe panic attacks that had lasted well over a year as I was wrestling with a phobia of death. (laughs) Talk about attachment to this world. I had just been married to Sarah, and I remember some nights falling asleep in our small apartment. As I was falling asleep, I would start to experience this great terror and panic and this sense that I was going to die immediately. My heart would start to pound uncontrollably. I would start to sweat, and and then I would just freak out, and then I would stand up, and I would just start running. (laughs) which really scared Sarah, who just got married to me. What are you doing? I had to run. And literally, I was running from this fear of death that seemed to be around me. Panic attacks kept coming. I had no control over it. They actually didn't stop until I was a chaplain at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, constantly surrounded by death. As I anguished over my own fear of death, I started to learn how to process my feelings and my emotions in a chaplain support group. Started to talk to my wife at home about what I was feeling. And all the while, I was actually drawing closer to God, which surprised me. And I slowly grew as a pastor who was capable of walking with people who were actively dying. And during this time, I was also working with college students as a part of my full-time job. I grew as someone who was able to walk with and love students who struggled with anxiety and depression. And let me tell you, there are a lot of students that struggle with anxiety and depression. That suffering that I experienced, however small it may seem, as I was learning to let go of this fear of death and my attachment to this world, matured my capacity to love others well and not judge them because I knew their anxiety or their depression wasn't something that they could just flip a switch and turn off. When we go to God, And we seek the care of our brothers and sisters, learning how to talk about what's going on. Even in the midst of pain and hardship, suffering is never wasted. It is never pointless. But there is profound possibility for what God can do in the midst of your hardship as you relinquish your attachments to the things of this world. We can grow. My prayer is that we be transformed above all into a people of love, hospitality, and service. Let's pray.